If you would, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this morning we will be looking at verses 6 through 11 and verses 36 through 40. And if you are visiting with us, we typically preach through the Bible verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so this is where we find ourselves this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 11 and verses 36 through 40. And the title of my sermon this morning is Singleness, Marriage, and Divorce. And my key words for our worshipers in training are single, husband, and wife. And as I was preparing this morning, I remember remember a comment from uh, the the stand-up comedian uh, named Rodney Dangerfield. And he said, My wife and I were happy for 20 years. Then we met each other. And sadly, as I think about that, today... Many agree with him. And as a result, it's leading to unprecedented divorce rates in our country especially. And it's, it's creating a disillusioned future generation that is waiting much longer in life to marry if they marry at all. Opting instead for cohabitation, multiple relationships, because monogamous Marriage relationships are restrictive and unrealistic in our culture because in the end, they simply end in divorce. That is the mindset. So thankfully, the Lord has spoken on these very issues. In today's text, the Apostle Paul gives a balanced and very godly understanding of singleness, marriage, and Divorce, And we won't cover all of these in their fullness today because we'll see them again in chapter 7, but we will hit on each of them. So let's read together, beginning in verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Jump to verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is not sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. 
A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now, important for us to remember as we look at this text is the context of what Paul is talking about. Paul is addressing questions now that the Corinthian church had specifically for him. We see in verse 1 of chapter 7, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and we see quotes around this statement was a statement of the Corinthian church where they were saying, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So from there, in verses 2 through 5, Paul talked about the necessity and the importance and the gift of, mar- of a marital sexual relationship. And so now what he's moving into is the importance of singleness as a gift within the body of Christ. And then he's going to speak on when it is important and when one should look to be married And then additionally, we'll stress the importance of the permanence of marriage. And it appears as we read through this that the Corinthian church was made up of of probably two opposing viewpoints here. One was a group that was most likely uh, Jewish Christians who were accusing those within the church who were single, accusing them of sin. They were saying something along the lines of, God said it is not good for man to be alone, to be fruitful, and to multiply. And you're not doing that, therefore you are in sin. And so they would look at everyone who was not married and would consider them to be in sin. On the other side were Gentile Christians who saw marriage as a negative burden on their new life in Christ and they wanted to completely remove themselves from marriage. They did not even want to consider it. They wanted to live some higher life of devotion totally given over to God because if they were married, they would be unable to serve appropriately. And so they saw celibacy as a way to be more spiritual. And they had a false piety that even led to some advocating divorce in order that they could be single. And so these are the issues that Paul is addressing. The importance and value of singleness within the church. The importance and value of marriage and the permanence of marriage. And he's already addressed the opposition to sexual intimacy that some of the Galatian Christians were most likely pointing to. And so now he's going to address the opposition to singleness and celibacy amongst the brethren. So let's look at his argument for singleness. Look again at verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another, to the unmarried and the widows. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. 
Look again at verse 37. Whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Now, there's an extended argument for singleness in verses 25 through 35, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. But right here, the Apostle Paul is addressing those in the church who were single. He himself was a man who was single. Now, there are some who believe that Paul may have been a widower, that at some point maybe he was married, his wife died, and now he is single and remains that. We don't have that in the text, and so I don't seek to extend that, but it is a thought. Nevertheless, he is saying to them, I wish you all were also single. So why did he say that? Let's walk through these verses. Verse 6. There's a lot of debate about verse 6 and whether or not it's referring back to what he said in verse 5 or if it's referring to what he says beyond this. I'm not going to go into all that, but I do see both positions and tend toward the view of addressing all these things that are following his statement here regarding singleness. He says, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. He's responding to false legalistic views of the Jewish people who taught that if you didn't have a wife, that you were in sin. Because they said a man who does not have a wife and a child has slain his posterity and has lessened the image of God in the world. They believed that there were seven types of people who could not go to heaven. They had a list of seven types of people who couldn't go to heaven. Number one was a Jew with no wife. And number two was a wife with no children. So they had a very wrong understanding that Paul was addressing regarding singleness. He's saying, I'm telling you now, celibacy or singleness is permitted, but it's not commanded. The concession, or the King James says, the granting of permission, the permission to be singleness is okay. It's okay to be single. In fact, for some, it is best. But it's not commanded that one should be necessarily. And so that is his setup here in verse 6. I'm saying you have permission. I'm not commanding that it is absolutely necessary. Let's see why. Again, verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another, to the unmarried and the widows. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So not only is there permission or concession for singleness, but actually Paul's desire for the believers is that they would be single as he is. But there is an if to this. I want you to be single as I am if one has the gift of singleness. We see that in verse 7. He points to singleness as a gift that not everyone has. In fact, I would argue singleness is limited to very few people within 
the church. And it is for a very specific purpose of ministry. And that will be addressed later on in verses 25 through 35. So Paul does not see it wise or right to force anybody into marriage or celibacy, but only to move as one is gifted by the Lord. God wills that some would be single like Paul, and God wills that others would be married like Peter, who took his wife on his missionary travels with him. And he also includes widows in verse 8. He's speaking to those who now, because of the death of their husband or wife, are in a new station in life, a new opportunity to serve Christ. They're free from an obligation to their spouse. And he's saying, instead of seeking remarriage, at least consider that you can live a life of singleness as something that the Lord may be giving you for a particular service in the kingdom. Now, as we talk about singleness, there's something very important that we have to consider. (coughs) Singleness in the Bible is not prolonged, irresponsible, self-serving adolescence that continues on into our 30s and 40s so we have no distractions in playing our video games or pursuing our education or pursuing our career. That is not what biblical singleness is. Singleness, and even if one is to be married later, singleness is a call to do that which men and women in marriage cannot necessarily do because of their marital obligations. For example, the thrust of the ministry of the Apostle Paul was to go from city to city, establish churches Plant churches, move on, get beaten, get thrown in prison, get shipwrecked. All of these things were in his life. And were he married, perhaps would not have been able to serve to the extent that he was. And so singleness is not a means to carry on a life of self-satisfaction. It is for the Lord. And it is vitally important to view singleness in the correct light. Many use it as an excuse or uh, as a benefit to never give themselves over to someone else or they don't want expectations from a spouse or their expectations for a spouse are so unrealistic and based in fantasy that they will never find the one they are looking for. And I think there's no coincidence that divorce rates are rising at the same time alongside the age of those who are getting married is rising. Because as we look at this idea of singleness, there are those who will prolong adolescence. They will continue on in their childish and foolish ways in order that they can fuel their self-serving desires. 
and then eventually, as they get older, bring those into marriage, which causes many, many difficulties. And so, understanding singleness biblically is vitally important to know that God gives the gift of singleness for specific purposes. And even if one is to later be married in life, they must view their time of singleness as a means to serve for the glory of Christ to the world. We see culturally a growing notion of this radical independence. The ideal has shifted from training and growing families to economic and career successes. So it's now very common to hear. And I want to be, I want to be sensitive here because I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to uh, get to a place here where you're, you're thinking that um, I, I am condemning you if this has been a mindset that you've held. But we need to consider this in light of the Scriptures. It is very common to hear now that one is waiting to get married until something else happens. And so it's until I finish school or until my career is established, or till, until I have a certain amount of money. And so when that mindset is at work, we end up pursuing worldly versions of relationships. So we find someone who meets the qualifications for marriage, and instead of pursuing that for marriage, we end up dating for six or eight years until... We're able to be married all the while there's a burning with sexual desire for one another because that is natural. And so we're constantly flirting with temptation. Since 1970, the average age uh, for marriage in males and females has increased by about five years. On average, in 1970, women were being married at the age of 21 and men at the age of 23. Now, the average age of women being married is 26 and men is 28. And so what we see is five more years where one is at their, their peak of sexual interest and fertility for women because... God has created them in this way. And so, not only battling against sexual desire, but battling against the Creator's design. And so, the common response is that we would say, in the midst of this, you're not married, stay celibate, pursue chastity. And that is good and right. But... What we have ignored and a lot of times avoided is on top of pursue chastity, pursue celibacy, this is good, this is right, but also in that pursue marriage. Get married. This is God's design. So Paul establishes in here that there is a time for one to get married. We must see and understand and celebrate that. So here is what Paul has established. 
There's a concession for singleness. Those who have the gift of singleness have a right understanding that that singleness is for a specific purpose. They have controlled desires. They have determined what that purpose is and are able to walk fully in that. And that one must remain single if possible in that because it means that the gift is present and God will use it for His great purposes. Now, he goes into whether or not that, if that gift of singleness is not present. Look at verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. And verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is not sin. Do not burn with passion, but get married. If you're unmarried or if you're a widow and you cannot control your sexual desire, it is good and it is right to get married. And he's addressing men and women here. Now, something very important here. If single and seeking to be married, Paul is not saying that the reason to be married simply is that you have more readily accessible, uh, sinless sexual fulfillment in your life. That's not what Paul is saying. The Bible does celebrate marriage and sexual intimacy within that marriage, but marriage is not ultimately about us. Marriage is about God. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul writes that marriage is about a picture or the parable being lived out of Christ's relationship to the church. So marriage is not just about having a mere channel to fulfill sexual desire, but marriage is about Jesus and the church. So, how do we pursue this? How does one pursue finding this one to marry? Do we just walk into the church and find someone and say, you'll do? No, the Bible gives us some instruction and some guidance to use wisdom and prudence in this. We see in the very beginning that God has established a threefold process in pursuing these things. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, I know uh, as I get into this, I know that Paul is not addressing this specifically, but in part, I want to show you that he's not saying the primary reason to marry is simply because you have sexual desire. And also, I think that this may be, if not number one, pretty close to the number one way that Christians look exactly like the world and almost exactly nothing like what the Scriptures teach in terms of pursuing a mate. So here's the threefold process that the Scripture lays out. First is that the man leaves his mother and father. 
So when a man is ready to be married, he gets rid of his Star Wars pajamas, he gets a place, and he gets a job. Okay, he moves away from mom and dad and gets established. He finds his roots in that. We're not talking about him finding a beautiful home with room to grow in. We're not talking about a career being in full gear, making 80000 a year, and schools all over. He has his 401k started, and he's in middle management. We're not talking about that. We're talking about him having a job, a means to support. So the man leaves mom and dad, he establishes that he has a place to live, and he has a means of support. Secondly, then he holds fast to a wife. He gets married. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Because there's a lot to consider in this. First of all, a man must ask himself, How is my relationship with the Lord? Before I can ever think to pursue a relationship with a woman, how is my relationship with God? Because it is my obligation as a man to lead my family spiritually. If I have no relationship with the Lord, certainly I cannot fulfill that what I am called to. Am I maturing in the Lord? Am I hungry for the things of God? Am I striving for holiness in my life? How am I going about this? How am I seeking to find my future spouse? Am I letting the cultural worldview dictate that which I will be and do? Or am I seeking to know what the Scriptures teach of a godly woman? And am I done being a boy? And I'm not saying this to be funny. I'm saying, have I grown up and taken responsibility for my life? And am I leaning in hard on the Lord? Am I done putting things that are of this world and maybe foolish in front of me and pushing those things aside and striving to honor the Lord that I may lead others in godliness. Are all those things in place? If so, then perhaps I'm ready to be married. So what should he look for? First and foremost, a Christian. Verse 39 A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. This applies to men as well. Who do Christians marry? They marry other Christians. And so a man should be on the lookout for a woman who displays the characteristics of The woman in Proverbs 31. The woman that's called to the things of Titus chapter 2 or 1 Peter 3. She has a quiet and gentle spirit. And if a man's not pursuing these things, then he will probably be living on the corner of his roof in two months, according to the Proverbs. must ask questions like, do we share foundational theological convictions? 
that we would not be at war with one another over the things of God day after day after day. Does she love Jesus more than she'll ever love me? Not, I like her because she's hot. Guys, I know men who married hot and they go to sleep at night crying themselves to sleep because they're miserable. They are miserable. That is not what the Bible points us to in finding a spouse. Yes, as we get to know someone and we develop in our relationship with them, they will become more and more and more attractive to us because we discover their hearts and they, we discover their love for us and most ultimately we discover their love for the Lord. And if we are walking in Christ, that becomes very attractive to us. Our ideal is not, she's hot. I think there's two biblical ways for a man to pursue a woman. And I say it that way because it is that he initiates and she responds. A man will be bound or hold fast to his wife. The first is this idea of Courtship. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 6, where it says, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. This is where we get for the wedding ceremony the idea of a father giving away his daughter to a man. And so men are commanded to take wives and have children. Fathers are commanded to give their daughters over in marriage. So in this idea, we see that a young woman would ideally stay close to her family, and then a young man enters into this family and has a time where he dates her dad for a while. And so he gets to know the father, and they have conversations and they talk and they discuss and find out, is this a godly man? What are his theological convictions? Is he walking in the Lord? How will he marry my daughter? How will he support my daughter? How will he lead my daughter? What kind of father will he be for my grandchildren? And on and on and on. Not at the last minute, Dad, this is so-and-so. He wants to marry me. Is that cool? No, there's a long relationship between father and possible spouse where they get to know each other and walk in this together because that girl belongs to that father until he gives her away. He has a responsibility there with the one who may possibly be seeking to marry his daughter. And this works well when the girl has godly parents who seek after biblical wisdom and she lives with or near her parents. But that doesn't always work out. And so the second way is 
mainly for older ladies or for women who are not near their parents or for women who do not have godly parents. Again, in this, the goal is not to find someone, have a good time for a while, find someone else, have a good time for a while, and then eventually just fall into marriage. The goal is marriage. So the two get to know each other. There's a, as First Timothy says, there's a brother-sister relationship for a time. We treat one another as brother and sister, getting to know each other, building that relationship, finding out what makes us tick, where we are in our lives, how the Lord is working within us. We get to know each other. And then as we pursue this further, we get counsel. We ask those who know both of us, what do you think about this relationship? What do your friends think? What does your family think? What is the consensus of the church in this? That is vitally important because often we find ourselves in relationships and we do not see all of the things that others outside of it may see. Is it ultimate? No, it's not ultimate, but it is vitally important. So we get to know them, we get counsel, and then we get married. But there is an important aspect to this form, which is communal involvement, where others are speaking into that relationship. There's a time of assessment for marriage, and it's all under this canopy of sexual purity. And a word for parents here, if biblical qualifications are met... Don't add to those biblical qualifications and make it difficult for your children to get married. Celebrate mature Christian marriage that does not postpone what God has instituted to make much of Jesus and bring us greater satisfaction and joy. Dads, when that guy comes up, so what if his car doesn't have a hood? It works. So what if he doesn't make $80,000 a year? So what if she hasn't finished school? Let them marry. Help them by letting them be protected from sin and temptation. Let them walk in the Lord together because that is how they have been designed. And the third aspect of seeking these relationships is that the two become one flesh in a godly manner, which we talked about last week. Okay, so, do you have the gift of singleness? If so, be single. If you're single, maximize your singleness. Do you have sexual passion? If no, you have the gift of singleness. If yes, grow up, get a job, get a place, evaluate your life and your relationship with the Lord, find a woman, get married, and make babies. That is the biblical qualification. Verse 38, So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now, Paul moves from this to those who are already married. Look at verse 10. 
To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet... In my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Paul is saying, your marriage, if you are married, is until death. Till death do us part. Now he says here, not I, but the Lord command this to you. He's referring back to where we read in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus is addressing a question that was used to try and trap him up. And he says, Moses gave you permission because of your wicked and idolatrous hearts to file a letter of divorce that you would be separated. But I say to you, do not divorce. And if a woman divorces her husband and gets remarried, she is in adultery. And he's saying, I'm not saying this. The Lord is saying this. So verse 10, do not divorce. And we will talk about that more uh, as we pick up the next section. So I'm not going to go into a lot of it right now. But verse 10, do not divorce. Verse 11, if divorce has happened, do not remarry. Be open for and working toward reconciliation with that person who has been divorced from you. Verse 39, that marriage you are in is for life and you're only free to remarry when your spouse dies. And verse 40, it's better to stay single after that spouse dies. So as I say this, some of you are cringing because you're thinking right now, you know my husband and you know he's an idiot. Okay, maybe so. I'm not taking that away from you, but I don't feel bad for you marrying him because if he's an idiot now, he was before. And so then we think along the lines of, well, what if I married the wrong person? Just think logically about that for a minute. If one person messes this thing up, it screws it up for everybody, right? If I look at my spouse and say, maybe I married the wrong person. Well, that means 750 years ago, someone else married the wrong person and they had children and they married the wrong person. It is completely illogical to think in those terms. You know how I know you didn't marry the wrong person? Because you said, I do, and made a covenant with them until death do you part. And in that, you are commanded by God to love your spouse and display to the world what Christ loving the church and the church loving Christ looks like. And look, I know, I know that some of you have awful, difficult marriages. But there is no excuse in this to trash or distance yourself from or stop living with or separate from your spouse. Do you think that Sarah was really fired up about Abraham saying that she was his sister twice? Do you think that Hosea and Gomer had some tough times in their relationship? 
What about Job's relationship with his wife? In the midst of his suffering, his wife looks him in the face and says, Curse God and die. There are difficult, difficult marriages to look at. But never do we find excuse in them to trash our spouse, to leave our spouse, to stop living with our spouse, to stop striving to love our spouse. A lot of times, here's here's what happens. A woman has a lazy, selfish husband and she compares him to her friend's husband's. And so then she builds resentment, they begin fights, and then they never get help in that until it's too late. Or there's a husband striving and trying, but he can never quite meet her expectations because they're wishing he was someone he's not. Because you don't want a husband in the end, you want a God. Husbands make terrible gods. Wives make terrible gods. But we get into this mindset because of the world's understanding of relationships. Let me give you a quick example. I watch very few movies, but I remember this one. And I heard this illustration from a pastor named Matt Chandler. I thought it was excellent. The movie uh, several years back called Jerry Maguire. And there's a scene in there. I told this in my Sunday school class. There's a scene in there when uh, Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger are hanging out in the elevator. They're going somewhere. And a deaf couple walks in and they're signing to one another. And she, Renee just starts crying because she can obviously see what they're saying. And she steps out of the elevator and he looks at her and he says, what's, what's going on? What did she say? Or what, what, what did they just say? And she's crying. She said, he said, you complete me. Okay, so then we fast forward to the end of the movie. They've had some fights. They, all this has gone down. And so she's in the living room of her house and she's hanging out with other women and they're bashing men and they can't stand relationships or whatever. And it's pouring rain out and he runs inside soaking wet. And he says, I'm in the living room. I could close it. He was an agent, a sports agent. I can close the deal in the living room. I'm good at this. And he walks in there and he says... Tonight was good. Something good in our little business happened, but it could have been better. It would have been much better. It would have been full if you were there because you complete me. And then you see her sobbing. Just shut up. Shut up. You had me at hello. Okay. This is a dump truck full of hot garbage. If you are looking for your spouse to complete you, you will consider and eventually convince yourself that it is okay to divorce because you deserve something better than what you're getting. No, you don't. You do not deserve something better. You deserve hell as much as I deserve hell. And it's much worse than your marriage will ever be. If you're seeking for your spouse to complete you, you're seeking another God. 
Men, we are no better. In fact, many of our expectations are much worse and much more ridiculous. We compare our wives to photos we see in magazines. We expect them to keep a certain look or a certain size. We expect them to care for our kids and clean our laundry and have the dinner ready when we get home so I can come and sit on the couch and not be bothered. And we expect her to only have an opinion when I give it to her. Look, who who do we sin against the most in this world? Our spouse. Why? Because we feel safe, because we're locked in. How dare we? This is the relationship that God calls us to live out in order to display to the world what Christ's relationship is to the church. Remember when Jesus spoke of His his command regarding marriage and divorce, the apostles said, well, it's better to never do this at all then because it's too difficult. Marriage can be tough. How do we do it? How do we do till death do us part? Because otherwise we're going to look at this like the apostles and say, well, then it's not even worth it. It's just too hard. The answer in closing is the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Living with our spouse till death do us part is a healthy life of daily repentance, constantly depending on Christ. And because we are His workmanship, because He has prepared us for good works, He will continuously transform and renew us. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So when we meditate on what Christ has done for us, reconciling us back to God, there is no room for self-service and unforgiveness and bitterness and thoughts of divorce and marriages that do not reflect Christ in the church when we confess our sins daily and recognize our sins against our spouse and ask God to work those things out in our heart because we want to display to the world how much Jesus cares for His people, the Lord will renew us. 
I cannot simply tell you to go from here and try harder and do better in your marriages because if you try harder and try to do better, you won't. You will fail. I must tell you to point your heart to the cross day after day after day. Recognize your sin. Repent of your sin. Be reconciled to Christ day by day in that sin that you can walk in holiness with your spouse reflecting the beauty of that relationship God has given to you. Because you cannot have a good marriage on your own. But with God, all things are possible till death do us part. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the practical instruction of your word. And we ask, God, that you help us to have a right understanding of these things that we have looked into today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to evaluate where we are in life relationally right now. Father, if we are single, Lord, help all who are single in here to use their singleness, to maximize their singleness, to point others to Christ to use this time that they have to make much of Jesus. Father, for those who may have the gift of singleness, I pray that you make that known to them and that they seek to know what to do with it. Father, for those who are ready to be married, I pray that you give them a godly perspective on that that fathers would care for and nurture their daughters and evaluate those who are pursuing their daughters and for men to be godly and respectable to young women who they are pursuing. Father, to do things in a way that brings you the most glory, that honors women. Father, we pray that for those who are married, that daily... We are reminding ourselves and one another of the gospel. That two sinners said, I do, and in that must work through many things throughout life. But Father, we know that while it seems impossible in our finite minds, that with you all things are possible and that you bring all things to pass for your good and perfect purposes. I pray, God, that you would give us a perspective on marriage that binds us for life, for the good of representing to the world the relationship of Christ and His church. Father, most importantly, I pray that in all of this, you would help us to constantly rely on the grace that you provide in Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on the cross of Christ, to walk fully in all that He has accomplished for us, forgiving others because You have forgiven us. Lord, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the conviction that Your Word brings. Help us, Lord, to walk in the newness of life that You have granted us in the righteousness of Christ.